0: This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Thomas Moore. He is the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Care of the Soul. Uh, Thomas Moore is a writer, lecturer, and psychotherapist who lives in New England with his wife and two children. Moore lived as a monk in a Catholic religious order for 12 years. He also holds a Ph.D. in religious studies from Syracuse University. Uh, Thomas, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on with
1: us today. Oh, I'm looking forward to it.
2: Uh, Thomas, for those people who are not uh, familiar with you and your work, you have uh, a very interesting background in spirituality. Perhaps you could give us a brief overview of how you uh, came to the work you do, and especially how you uh what entered into your decisions to become a monk and then to uh, not be a monk <laughs>
1: that's a pretty big big story yeah um i can tell you that uh i grew up in an irish catholic family and it was very easy for me to leave home at a young age around 13 to enter a a, a religious order that was it was almost like a, a monastery in the world kind of mm-hmm. the way it was it was monastic life, but, um, but very much in the world, and a very intelligent group, and I loved it. I just love that life, and even today I try to live as a monk if I can in my own way as a married person too, and um, so I stayed with that for a long time, but when I got to be around 25 or 26, just before I would be ordained a priest in the Catholic religion, I, uh, I, I woke up and I, I realized that What had been moving me all these years just wasn't there anymore. Mm. I think there were a lot of developments going on so much deep inside me that I didn't have any external reasons to leave it, but I trusted my feeling, and I I left that life and wandered around for a while and finally found my way to Syracuse University, where I was able to study religion, which I really loved. Um, I'm so glad that that was my field. It's the best best I could have chosen for myself, but it's very, very different from where I was when I was a Catholic monk. Uh, I've been exposed and very much influenced by Zen Buddhism and Greek spirituality and Taoism, uh, many traditions, and uh, that does something to you, and at Syracuse, I was able also to study um, religion in a much broader sense.
2: Was Houston Smith
1: there? That? was Houston Smith? That yes, Houston Smith was one of my teachers mm. for, I think two years. Yeah. I think it was two. And uh, we worked together very closely. Mm. Wow. How wonderful.
0: Uh, uh, do you uh, Thomas, do you still consider yourself a Catholic?
1: Mm. Do I consider, consider myself a Catholic? Yes, Is that' the question. Yeah, that's uh, well. In my own mind, I do, but I don't mm-hmm. think outside my mind. It's <laughs> uh, well. well, well my
0: follow-up question to that is: Do you consider yourself a Catholic? Ye- yes, in your own mind, uh, and if so, why? Uh, why do you consider yourself se- a Catholic? Having been exposed to many different religious traditions, why do you stay connected to Catholicism? Uh,
1: well, I I stay connected to the Catholic tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is slightly different from Catholicism, I guess. Mm-hmm. I, I I stick to it because that's where I grew up. I don't think that one can just disregard and dis- discard things that have happened to you. I mean, I'm you know, I, all my work is about the soul, and I think that my soul was you know was steeped in Catholicism. I can't just say that's not there. I don't just grow up out of it. Mm-hmm. It's it's with me my whole life. So I like to be positive about it because I do think that there's an enormous amount that's very positive. And so, uh, but but on the other hand, there's so many things that as you mature and ripen, you have to let go, especially moral, you know, judgments and authority and all that kind of thing. You have to really find your own authority. I think that's just part of growing up. So um, I have a different relationship to that tradition, radically different. It's, The fact is, I don't know too many people who feel the same way I do about that. It's so radical, and yet still belonging in some way. Mm -hmm. As I said, I I don't belong externally. People always say to me, well, do you practice? Well, no, I don't practice in that outward sense. I practice in my life. I practice my Catholicism even better and more intensely than I
2: ever have. Interesting. Um, Thomas, you, you became known throughout the world when you uh, wrote and published Care of the Soul, which was subtitled A Guide for Cultivating Depth and Sacredness in Everyday Life, and it became a huge sensation. Um, You've subsequently written many other books, some of which have the word soul in the title. What do you mean by soul, and what did you mean by it when you wrote Care of the Soul, and why do you think it resonated so much? I I suspect it
1: resonated. I'll start there, um, because it 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 said something it says something that people know firsthand. That's how a title works, you know, if people don't have to think about it much and but it says something that they can recognize. I think people recognize that they have a depth and a mysteriousness that has never really been addressed enough in our modern world. Even today, I think I think care of the soul is needed today more than ever before. It's because we have become more literal, more physical. We talk about the brain. We talk about, you know, chemistries having to, you know, as explanations for human behavior. That's very materialistic, but it's subtle, and it's kind of snide, because you don't realize that you're being a materialist when you talk about these things this way, but you are. So I really liked it. When you said that title or subtitle, I really like it still, you know, that Mm. it's it's about... uh, depth and sacredness that's that's what my work is all about and soul soul has both soul has the depth you know depth is one of the words that has been associated with soul for thousands of years and uh sacredness places it within the realm not of psychology which has become a very secular materialistic uh field but within the realm of the spiritual what we would call today the spiritual
0: right Uh, Thomas, you mentioned uh, uh, psychology, uh, becoming secular, but uh, you are a psychotherapist, and one of the things I read, one of the influences on you was uh, uh, the the writings of Carl Jung. Carl Jung uh, spoke about a collective unconscious, as I recall. Uh, Did you incorporate that into your sort of spiritual thinking in terms of uh, how we influence each other spiritually in a collective way? Um, uh, not sure if I'm articulating the question right, but I, I, I guess I want to know the relationship between a collective unconscious and spirituality in your mind.
1: Yeah, well, I would not. I don't use those terms from Jung. You know, I mean, I've, I read Jung every day. Mm-hmm. I, I'm very devoted to Jung, and I teach at Jung <coughs> societies all the time. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I'm not really a Jungian. You know, I never, I never just became part of that. I mean, I figured I was a Catholic, you know, that's enough uh, joining for me. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, uh, but on the other hand, I really love Jung's work, but there are many things about it that I I don't quite accept. And one of them is, I'm not not too pleased with this idea of a collective unconscious, but I am very interested in the notion of an archetypal realm. Mm -hmm. That is to say that there's something very universal, deep, beyond understanding going on within us always and these things these things that move us are not ourselves they're not aspects of the self as some very many people today talk about it so i think jung was especially in his practice was very very good at relating directly to these archetypal elements within us which are often manifested mythologically or at least that's how we we can talk about them so let's say the the Aphrodite, the pleasure, beauty, sexuality uh, demand on us. Uh, Artemis, the, the, the need to be individual and alone and solitary. All these demands on us that are from yes. life itself. Some people might call that the collective unconscious. I think that's misleading. Uh, really, it's more archetypal and mythic. It's very deep within us. And uh, and it, they, those things, I think, are exactly the stuff of religion. So that's where, again, the sacredness and the death come together.
2: Interesting. Uh, Thomas, uh, we're recording this uh, right before Thanksgiving 2018, so we're coming up on Christmas season. Um, Among the many books you've written are uh, two. uh, One is the... Uh, two books drawn from the Gospels. One is the Gospel, uh, uh, the book of Mark, one is the book of Matthew. Um, I'm curious w- why you undertook uh, a- an interpretation of of those uh, two of the four Gospels and-, and why those two and what's different about your take on them that would surprise people who are students of the Bible. That's
1: really a good question. The fact is, though, that you I think my website's a little behind the times. All four Gospels <laughs> all are Oh, are they? Yeah. <laughs> there you With go. The point to get them all out there, so they're all out and available. They are translated. Uh, I, I had studied Greek when I was a monk, and, and it's not a difficult language uh, in the Gospels. It's a very simple uh, Greek in the Gospels. So it wasn't a big deal, you know, to, to translate that. But I looked very closely at the languages I was translating. And I found uh, that when I when I researched the words very carefully, I felt that many, many key words as uh, they are translated usually in the Gospels uh, were incorrect, they were just misleading. So what I did was, I, I haven't written a sparkling, fantastically new way of, you know, talking in the Gospels. I've tried to write a very clear English version that takes these key words and translates them very differently. For example, instead of talking about sin, you look at that word carefully, you can do some study on it, and you realize that the tradition is that that word really means to make a mistake based on ignorance. Now, that's very different, mm-hmm. you know, from uh-huh. sin. I mean, you know, if you're going to talk about someone sinning, that's very different from saying, here's someone who just didn't know what was going on in his life, and he did something that he really regrets. So, I, I translate, you know, it takes me about a sentence to translate the one word, you know uh but the the point is that i do I do that with about maybe twenty or twenty five words, especially keywords that uh, can be re-reimagined not not based on my own thoughts but on the historical
2: uh understanding of the
1: word one uh, if
2: I can follow up Dennis one of the words I remember uh hearing someone speak about uh the usual translation of the word uh I, is it metanoia? Something that that's yes, usually metanoia. translated as um, repent. Yes. Could you address that one? Sure, absolutely. So metanoia is an
1: interesting word. Mm-hmm. Uh, meta means to change uh, or to go beyond. And noia means uh, two things. It means either the fact that the world is intelligible, that we can, the world is not random. It has a certain order to it, a meaning to it. And the other thing is that noia means that knowledge, that we, we can know what that order is, that we have, a, we have intelligence. So metanoia means to me, a change of the way we see the world, a change in the order of the world. So I think that's what the Gospels are all about. You shift from self-absorption of thinking that life, human life is all about, you know, being successful yourself you shift to uh, what what Jesus taught was a life based on agape, which is love. A kind of love which respects human beings for who they are. It's not personal love. It's not like a romantic love, but it's love of human beings and based on respect. So that that's a big change. You know, you don't repent is moralistic. And what I've done in these translations is really cleaned it up of a lot of the moralism of all the moralism because I don't think that's what's in the gospels at all mm. and yet christianity has turned it into a moralistic religion right so that's a pretty big change i'd say right you know? and
0: getting getting back to catholicism and the church how have they re, uh, reacted to that interpretation from you that teaching from you
1: I don't think, I'd be very surprised if more than 500 people have read these translations of mine. Uh-huh. It has not made a splash, so, um, you know, there's, there'll be no reaction. Nobody will, will, will be concerned about it at all. But I wanted to get it out there, you know, uh-huh. and uh, I, I speak about it and teach it, and uh, I, I do in such a way that people are
2: quite inspired by it. And do you remain in touch with any of the people you knew from your monastic days?
1: Not much. Um, I, have, I have a slight connection with a couple of them, but I don't know what happened. I think a lot of sometimes when you leave a community like that, people feel that you've rejected them. Mm. I don't know if that went on or mm-hmm. if we just went our separate ways. You know, just, I, I wish we I had continued, but I'm afraid the fact is I didn't. Mm. Right,
0: uh, Thomas. One of the uh, spiritual practices, maybe the main spiritual practice that you talk about, is imagination. Uh, t- tell us about that.
1: Well, I get that uh, largely from from work I did with James Hillman, who was a
0: mm-hmm.
1: Jungian analyst but went his own way with Jung, and he and I were very tight friends for mm-hmm. 38 years. Um, he died a few, about five years ago, and he influenced me a great deal. I thought he was brilliant. And uh, so it, in his work, imagination is the whole thing. It's how we imagine the world we're in that makes all the difference the stories we tell the um uh, the poetic attitude we bring to things he doesn't he never took things literally he'd always be able to see through to the deeper narrative going on in anything and that's what i've picked up uh, from him mainly is that i'm interested in the role of imagination so it has to do with the spiritual life Uh, it's very important because uh, it, it makes a big difference whether you look at your spiritual life in moralistic terms. Am I doing right? Am I doing wrong? Should I punish myself, or is life about joy and pleasure? And uh, you know, can I can I live in a way? Can I can I follow this religion in a way that will deepen my pleasure? That's what I do. I'm an Epicurean mm-hmm. in my approach. And I say I say in my books that Jesus was an Epicurean. I believe mm. he surrounded by his friends, uh, planning dinners. uh, The Last Supper is a dinner, being uh, open to massage from a woman, you know, uh, anointing his feet. This is all very Epicurean.
2: Very interesting. Uh, Well, this is a good segue uh, to the next question. You have a course coming up beginning December 3rd with um, our friends at spiritualityandpractice.com.
0: By the way, that's uh, December third, two thousand and eighteen. Because, uh, as you mentioned before no, recording, two fa- yeah, two thousand eighteen, right?
2: December third, two thousand eighteen. But whenever people listen to this, it will be available in the archive there, um, and it's called a universal Christmas. Um, and obviously, you're you're presenting a way to celebrate the season. Uh, for Christians and non-Christians, making it uh, a universal uh, way of uh, approaching the sacred, I assume. Could tell us about the course and what people can expect.
1: Yes, well, I, I, I do think that uh, we are entering a time where we, want, we have to really change, shift our attitude toward the religions and spiritualities. So, it's no longer makes any sense for us to be exclusive and to uh, fight for our church spiritually. That, that's that's old that's old stuff. you know, I don't think we're there anymore. And we have learned many people have have been able to turn to Buddhism or Zen or the Dalai Lama or uh, yoga uh, these these uh, spiritual sources and not worry so much about whether they belong or if they have to. Uh, give their full belief to it, that they can practice it and get what they can from it. I think the same should be done with the Gospels, that they are available for us all and they have an incredibly important and beautiful message, and that is to change your life, metanoia, change your way of doing things and try to live from love rather than from self-interest. I mean, that's it's a very basic idea. Now, Christmas is all about that. It's the It's the celebration of this infancy of this idea, the infancy of this person, Jesus, who taught it and embodied it. I mean, his lifestyle and the way he lived and what he taught were about living from love. It has nothing to do with joining of religion, as far as I can see. And I, nev- I don't see anything in the Gospels that say that he was trying to create a religion. He's, he's, he's offering a way of life that can save you from a great deal of pain and meaninglessness. So that's universal, and everyone in the world could gain something from that. And Christmas is a wonderful, joyful celebration of of, of this discovery. It's, it takes place right at the solstice, where we're going from darkness to light, as a tremendous natural image, a natural symbol for moving out of the darkness of this self uh, self anxiety into a life of pleasure and uh, joy. So. I think everything to do with Christmas—the parties, the you know, the the good times, the the exchange of gifts—all of those things are really important and are the real meaning of Christmas.
2: Yeah,
0: I actually think that's uh, quite brilliant. The, what you're saying about uh, 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 taking the teaching and not necessarily joining an organization or a club or a religion, in this case. Uh, and uh, and again, I mean, I think what organized religions would say—Christian religions. Of all uh, types would would say is that well you have to first get baptized into this uh, that's sort of your initiation and then you have to follow these rules about on the Sabbath you have to do this and you have to take this bread and uh, turn it into uh, uh, the, the the body and blood of Christ so there's all this stuff that you absolutely have to do so that's where joining the kind of the the, the group comes in but for for me the real value whether you're taking from uh, Christianity or the Dalai Lama or wherever, is you're incorporating these practices, spiritual practices and lifestyles uh, that are, are, are helpful for human development of life, at least I, I believe they are. Uh, so, uh, And I, I would imagine that uh, there, these days, people, especially those people, many of them who claim to be spiritual but not religious, embrace that, but others that are religious uh, would probably have a
1: problem with it. Well, you know, I don't have too much of a problem. I mean, I think there are different ways of being religious now, or spiritual. And one way it's very, very valuable and effective for people is to return to their to the religion of their childhood mm-hmm. or their family, and formally, you know, to become a member again. That that's perfectly fine. I don't. I I have chosen to go a different direction. That doesn't that doesn't work for me. But I was in it pretty intensely, and I sometimes say jokingly, you know, I kind of put my time in very intensely. Right. So I've done it, and now I want to do something else, which is to be have, which is to have a very different, freer relationship to that tradition. But I do meet many people, and I and I've, um, I um I have no problem at all with it that they uh, become intense uh, members, uh, practicing members, and they want to officially become members of the community. I think that's terrific. It's just not my way of doing it. And what I want to do in my work is, it's not my work to help people get back into the membership. My work is to be able to help people see that there's a way of doing this that doesn't require membership. Or, if you are going to become a member, do it intelligently and deeply. And I think that what I'm writing about can help at that level, too.
2: Well, as um, someone who was raised by atheist Jews, um and I came to love Christmas. I love the music, I love the spirit of it, and I have my own way of sort of reading between the lines of the the uh, message of Christmas and uh, would probably resonate with your universal uh, approach to it. Can you tell us about? Where the birth of Jesus fits in uh, for people who uh, are taking a course like yours, um, how do you see that? Is it is it symbolic?
1: Well, um, the, the story of Jesus fits in completely. I, I kind of alluded to it before. Um, Jesus, both in his teaching and in his the way of life, that we find the gospel is a different way of life it is based on friendship that's an epicurean ideal friendship and community and the whole idea of agape that kind of love is more communal than personal so what he is suggesting there is that we can't we really could have a peaceful world if we adopted his vision i think that's true so when people sing peace to the world in silent night this is all all those songs are exactly right on target as to what this festival is all about and the life of jesus fits in and the fact you have a birth of the child take the child as an image of the beginnings of this new way of life as an image for the beginnings of a new way of life then it makes all the sense in the world to celebrate this to celebrate this infant the 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 infancy of this
2: possibility for humanity if I can follow up, Dennis, um, in all your uh, exploration and your uh, shifting relationship with church and and uh, uh, so forth, how have you come to see Jesus now? H- how what does he represent to mm-hmm. you? Do you see him as an incarnation, as a great teacher? Where do you hold him as as a uh, phenomenon? <laughs> So well,
1: we were talking before about the word archetype and archetypal. So what that means is that there is something very, very mysterious about certain people. They may be historical, or they may be mythical, but uh, in any case, uh, they really have a, a, a strong impact on culture and on individual people. Give an example of a fictional character. I happen to be a great lover of detective stories. And many people follow the whole history of Sherlock Holmes. You know, I mean, he was a fictional character, right? But he's an archetype too. He's someone you actually. Sometimes it's hard to remember that he wasn't historical. You know, right. that he was uh, mm-hmm. part of a series of stories. Uh, and you can go to London right now. You can go and look at his desk. You know, and all that kind of thing. <laughs> so, I think that's terrific. You know, to be able to have such a palpable sense of the imagination and imaginal figures. Now, Jesus is taught, apparently, you know, most people would accept that he was an historical figure, and that these stories do tell us who he was and what he taught. And at the same time, he was also archetypal. He was he, he represented a way of being in the world, so that he himself represents something. But even people today, like Martin Luther King, is also archetypal. You know, he represents what what happens when human beings really develop a deep moral sense and speak as a prophet. That's quite an archetypal role to play. So that's what Jesus is to me. Historical, you know, yes, but more importantly, representing uh, the possibility, which is more important than almost anything, to shift the way we live, to create some peace and community and uh, working together in this world that we obviously need so badly. And we may kill ourselves off if we don't get this message. Right. So I, th- I think Christmas is crucial.
0: Uh, uh, well put. Uh, uh, one last question for me, and that is that uh, you've been uh, lecturing and writing for a number of years. Has the um, reaction to your writings and, and lectures and also the interest of the people you're you're writing to and lecturing to Uh, changed much over the years, or is it fundamentally the same?
1: It's the same. It hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. Not at all. And, you know, what I like about it in regard to our conversation is that I find myself speaking in pulpits and churches all over the world. Many different religions, many different religions invite me, uh, churches invite me to get up and speak to their communities. I, I love that because that does represent what I want to be. And it fulfills what I decided to do when I was 13 years old, to become a a, a spiritual leader and uh, a priest, and I think I'm doing that right now.
2: I'm curious about the demographic of, of who you're reaching. I know you were recently at Kripalu, mm-hmm. um and you say you speak at churches and so forth. Are you uh, uh, speaking mostly to uh, people of... Uh, Uh, of a certain age, or are younger people also uh, coming to hear what you have to say?
1: they're all ages, all ages. Young people are coming. I just recently spoke in Ottawa, and uh, the place had many, the group was quite large, let's say, you know, 200 people. Out of those 200 people, you know, there were probably, I don't know, a third of them were very young people. Oh, good. And uh, I was really, really surprised in a way because I don't see quite that many. But at Kripala, there were a lot of young people as well.
2: Very good. I suppose
1: the majority is still older people because, for one thing, um, younger people weren't even born when, I, when Care of
2: a Soul came <laughs> out. They right. don't know who I am. Right. But the
1: older people, a lot of them have read uh, my books. So when I go out now to speak, um, people know what I represent. And, and they're very, I mean, I have to tell you, I just leaving Kropalo people were in tears you know and oh,
2: that's great mm-hmm. and Wonderful. really
1: wanting to continue to study and so the the message is very strong very very strong I wouldn't say it's huge you know my my reach is not huge but
2: it's strong great. speaking of um, demographics uh, on your website it looks like uh, you you have a book called Ageless Soul uh, has that been published yet, or is it still pre-published? Yeah, pre-pub- that's
1: been out for a year
2: now. <laughs> well, you do have to update your website, because it says pre-order now. Oh, it does. Well, <laughs> yes, I have to update. Sorry. So am not home enough to do all that. The um, the message, I mean, the book seems to be addressed to people who are aging, probably uh, yes. baby boomers and that demographic what's what is your message as as we close this out uh about aging for those well, mainly, Good question. What I, what I'm, <laughs> mainly
1: what i do with aging is what i do with everything i try to to uh explore the deeper aspects first of all of course you acknowledge any any bad stuff like you know aging is not fun for anybody you really have to be strong to be able to deal with it that's for sure on the other hand, there are many, many things happen that are very positive in aging as you get older. Besides, we're all aging all the time, so I present aging as something we're doing all our lives by, by allowing life to shape us, by going through experiences that are challenging, that, are, that can make us into more of who we are, and that's real aging. If you don't age that way, you get to be an old person, just old, you haven't aged, you're just old, and that's not much fun at all so I encourage this living, it's very much like care of the soul. You live a deep life. You, you you trust life and you you give yourself to it and you go through things that are challenging and painful and difficult and you reflect on them and you have your friends to support you and you go out the other side of it. and You do that all your life long. And when you've aged, you've got a lot to do now mm-hmm. to help other people.
0: You know, I love that <clears throat> comparison of old to age. You never hear anyone say... That's old cheese, that's aged cheese. That means something has good has taken place uh, over that period of time. Uh, Thomas, thank you so very much for your time and coming on. We'll have all the information about your upcoming course, your book, uh, your books, uh, your website, and I'll, I'll post it up. Uh, any final uh, words you'd like to share with our listeners
1: well i would just I would just say that the the key of the whole thing is to is to love yourself and love the people around you, it really is all about that, and not, not be too hard on yourself or to be hard on other people, to give everybody a chance and um, um, you know be supportive rather than critical at every, every step.
2: Great.: A good message as we enter Christmas, and I would encourage people to uh, sign up for your course uh, on spirituality and called A Universal Christmas, and it doesn't have to be Christmas time, so if you're listening to this on our archives some other time, right. I'm sure you'll get a lot out of it. Thomas, thank you so much for, for spending the time with us. Um, we wish you, you well, and um, have Merry Christmas.
0: Merry Christmas. Thank you.
2: <laughs> Best Christmas. Thank you very much.